Monday, March 14th, 1 p.m. Eastern time, snowing on the East Coast, peeps. This is Market Call, that man um, making moves in the background. You know him. That's Danny Moses, who I adore. Dan Nathan on vacation. You know what? Well-deserved vacation. He's earned it. Today's Market Call brought to you by CME Group, where risk meets opportunity. And we're going to talk about that in just a second. And, of course, our data provider is FactSet. Financial data and analytics, Danny, powered by tomorrow. I'm powered by the notion that the two of us are together yet again. How are you? I'm good, buddy. Not snowing on this part of the East Coast. Let me just be very clear. So. What 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 part of the East Coast do you currently the find? The southern yourself? part of the East Coast. The southern part uh, of the well, East Coast. So. Yeah, well, typically doesn't snow there. <laughs> We're you know, March happens to be one of those snowy months. I remember not that anybody particularly cares. But I was a young man. We got about two feet of snow the Saturday before Easter. Uh, that was like 1972. That's neither here nor there. Uh, I'm going to make reference to CME Group and why if some of these gentlemen and gentle ladies had used futures to hedge their risk, they wouldn't have gotten themselves into this predicament. But obviously, we had some inflation data. Let's roll the deco, as they say. You know, I thought this was pretty hot, to be honest with you. I mean, it didn't to me, it didn't ease any of my inflation fears. But for whatever reason, the market seems to be enjoying this. Thoughts on the CPI today, Danny? Listen, without this bank debacle, um, we'd be at 95 percent chance of 50 basis points next mm -hmm. week. So let's be clear what's really affecting rates is not this today. This is a somewhat of a sideshow and in line with expectations. I guess I would argue that if it, if it had actually been really low, Coming better than expected, we might even see more of a market rally now. But we mm -hmm. will get to that, I'm sure, later in the episode. I'd agree with that. Do you remember 1990? Now, I will tell you, folks, I could watch Tom Cruise read the phone book. There are maybe two or three of his movies that you know I won't watch because they suck. But I'll tell you, Days of Thunder in 1990 with one Michael Rooker uh, was a tremendous movie. So indulge me for a second, Danny. I think you'll understand what I'm saying. You recall there was a race scene uh, where where Rowdy Burns talked to his um, pit crew and said, the boy don't have the balls to pass me on the outside. Of course, the boy being Tom Cruise. And what does Tom Cruise do? He passes him on the outside. He goes on to win the race. And I think right now the market is saying the Fed don't have the balls <laughs> to hike rates here. And we'll see if they're going to pass the market on the outside. Just thoughts on that analogy, if you have any. Cold trickle. I guess is who we're who we're talking about, That's but correct. yes, um, I'm looking now. Fed fund futures uh, next week are 25 basis points, kind of locked in. But beyond that, it's just another 25, and there's now rate cuts being priced in. And we always said what would cause the Fed to pause and what would mm -hmm. cause the Fed to cut may not be what you want, and so that's where I think that we are. I think we accelerated the kind of relief rally of bullishness of oh, the Fed's done good. But we'll talk about what that really means in the aftermath of this and the financial conditions, et cetera. I'm sure we're going to get to that. So, yeah, we will get to that. And, you know, I would submit, first of all, you know, and I don't know if you agree with me on this or not. I've said it a couple of times, you know, in terms of rate hikes, you know, I think we had been in the eighth inning or so uh, for quite some time. With that said, and I'm curious as to your thoughts on this. I think in terms of market reaction or impact on the economy or lag effect, whatever you want to say, we're in the early innings. You know, we're probably bottom of the second, top of the third. You know, what are your thoughts on that? Because my point in making that is I think the market 
is underestimating the lag effect of all this stuff on not only the economy, but the market. Yeah, we were already kind of things were starting to set in motion. You had a nice rally to start the year. The layoffs are still kind of coming. And one other point, Guy, you know, quantitative tightening, which I'm going to say in past tense had been going on, and it really hasn't been going on if you look at the Fed balance sheet. I think we peaked near $9 trillion and we got as low, congratulations, Fed, to $8.4 trillion or just yeah. under. So that's the kind of the other reason here, I think, for if you want to call it a reason to rally the market. But we haven't really dealt with, you know, yes, we insured some deposits and that's great. But the fact that 96 hours ago, this to 99% of people, this crisis didn't exist. Now mm -hmm. we got to deal with the aftermath. And the aftermath guy is that if things were set in motion for even the thought of a soft landing, that soft landing is no longer as soft. And that's because the banks now are going to tighten lending standards even right. more. You're going to be under the microscope even more. And I think cost of capital throughout the system is going to move higher. Does it matter for today? No. Could it matter tomorrow? Sure. And I think as we get into kind of this last Fed meeting or this upcoming Fed meeting, we're going to roll into earnings again for Q1. And who leads off earnings? The banks. And so I think there'll be a lot of nervousness around that. And back to your original point here, Guy, is that I think earnings degradation was already set in motion. It's hard to see banks not suffering from an earnings perspective on the margin from what just occurred. So in an economy that's driven by credit and in you know an economy that was fueled by easy credit, zero interest rates for so long, I think your point is spot on. I don't think people are fully taking into consideration what these banks are now going to be forced to do. And maybe, listen, maybe they should be forced to do. I'm not commenting whether or not they should or they shouldn't be, but they will. And if credit conditions tighten, which almost by definition they will do. I mean, that's just going to add to that earnings degradation that we talk about. And again, when the consumer is 73% or so of the economy, you know, if they have more difficulties borrowing, whatever it is, using credit or credit, if rates go higher, I mean, that's just going to be a continued headwind for what I would submit as an already strapped consumer. Let's take a look at the E-mini S&Ps. And we look at things through the lens of futures here on CME Day. And what I'll tell you is today's rally, and, and again, there's a lot of day left, so I want to be careful here, but I think we got up to about 39.37 or, or thereabouts in the S&P today, which took us right back effectively to the 200-day moving average. I'm not submitting we failed there, but we stopped there for now. Um, is that, I know, Danny, listen, I look at this far more granularly than you do. Uh, but just wear my hat for a minute. Does that sort of make sense where we traded up to and where we seemingly stopped? Sure. And before I get to that, I want to make one other comment just to close the loop on the banks. You, Danny, this is a, your rodeo, man. You're on the ball. Ride that bitch for eight seconds. <laughs> we just saw a blow up in what are the safest bank assets, treasuries and mortgage-backed mortgage securities, agency mortgage-backed securities, right? Fannie, Freddie's, et cetera. We still have commercial real estate, C&I loans on these banks portfolios. And remember, commercial real estate has been defaulting now for five to six months. You have two very large funds out there, Blackstone REIT, Starwood REIT, which have halted redemptions. The only difference is you can't run on that bank because they've limited withdrawals to 5% a quarter. So I wanted to get that out of the way. Last week, we were on uh, Tuesday edition, I believe. Um, the chart was above the 200. And I made a comment, that chart's great until it drops below and you start to wonder, you know, can it get back above it again? Mm -hmm. So this is just kind of noise around the 200 day. It becomes self-fulfilling because people use it. So therefore you have to pay attention to it. I don't expect, Guy, much more of a rally here. 
all things being equal from where we were a week ago, which Silicon Valley wasn't in the purview of a lot of people and where we are now, to me, it brings forward the economic slowdown, maybe with a deep breath of, okay, deposits are guaranteed, but no one was even thinking about that a week ago. So however you want to extrapolate that or interpret that into this chart, those are my thoughts on it. So I would say if I was a technician and and then added some fundamental element to it, I would say it's going to have a hard time getting much higher than that. I agree with you, by the way, but I'll play devil's advocate for a second in the NASDAQ uh, futures if you want to take a look at those, because again, traded on the CME, here we are in this case, it's a little it's a little different. Here's where we traded down to the 200-day moving average and held. Now, there's a, there's a school of thought out there that lower rates help these um, highly, you know, high multiple, high growth NASDAQ names. And with rates, I mean, again, we talked about the move in the bond market. It's ridiculous. And I'm choosing that word, by the way. But rates are lower. Is there any... Is my argument flawed thinking that the market's just going to buy first, ask questions later here with rates going as low as they've gone over the last couple sessions, and they're just going to continue to take these high valuation, high growth names higher, which is effectively going to continue to lead the NASDAQ higher? Sure. For many people, it's an input into an algorithm, and it says buy. Um, Again, I don't know how you model a company or a portfolio Mm -hmm on what is supposed to be a very stable pricing mechanism, U.S. Treasuries, and impute that because we're talking 90 basis points between the up and down gyrations on the 10-year loan, if not more, um, down 60, up 30, whatever it might be in the two years. So again, to me, we're kind of kind of bobble here, obviously, on that line, but that certainly looks better than the S&P mm-hmm. uh, that you just showed. But again, come back in a week. If it's below it, it's not going to look pretty because I can't see what that level is down there on that triple bottom. Uh, but I would imagine that's several percentage points below where we are now. Yeah. You know, I've thought 9,800 here. I mean, that, that level is probably about 10,400 or thereabouts. So you know, I'm, I'm with you by the way. And, you know, Liz Young has talked about that, that of course, EY from SoFi, and you've brought this up as well. I mean, think about how quickly we went to a 1% inversion in the yield curve. I think we got out to 110 basis points. But as dramatic as that was and as potentially damaging as that was, I would submit, and I'm not an economist, I say it all the time, but this move back to what? Where are we now in two cents? 50 or so basis points is equally alarming and potentially more disturbing. Disturbing. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I think I'd actually said, I think you guys had asked me this a couple of weeks ago. I said, I think the flattening, if it were to go back to zero, would be around the 350 level or so. And that wouldn't be a good thing, obviously, because what would cause us to get to that level? Here's a banking crisis. If you want to call it contained, fine. Um, But what it really did, I believe, Guy, was expose the lack of fundamental research. I mean, the people that were buying, I'm not going to name funds. I'm not talking about the passive um, index funds. I'm talking about active money managers that were buying Silicon Valley and Signature literally up until the moment that they both imploded. You have to ask yourself a question as an active money manager, what kind of work are you doing? Are you just running mm-hmm. screens on book value to banks? And so I guess my point here, Guy, is that is that stock picking will matter. And yes, these all these indices and charts are, are one way to kind of look at it here, but it pays to be a stock picker in this environment. So you could indeed maintain these type levels, even in, on, the, on the tech, because you can do the same type of work. But I think within that, I think there's massive alpha opportunities. And so whatever signal you want to draw from, but I just think it's, it's really time to people to read your Q's and K's. And 
this stuff and these banks were right out in front of everybody. There was no one hiding this. This wasn't accounting fraud. There was nothing like that that was nefarious. So I definitely didn't answer the question that you just asked because I keep harping on the thought process of no. what makes well, the let market me, so here. Let me, so it's give a, me a yeah. second here. Let me just amplify that. You said nobody does the work. First of all, that's wrong because you do the work, number one. You know who else does the work? Jim Chanos does the work. You know who else does the work? Vinny Daniel does the work. And you know who else does the work? Porter Collins. I mentioned them because, and I'm not speaking out of turn here, they had a short position on in, in um, Silicon Valley Bank. And one that they took off, I believe, on the Friday, but doesn't matter because they spot on. My point in bringing it up is there are actually people that do the work. There are actually people that understand what the F is going on, and there are actually people that are profiting from it. So, you know, my pushback to you is, and, and this, I know what the answer is, a bit of a rhetorical question, but, you know, in zero interest rates, high liquidity environment, nobody needs to do the effing work because everything goes higher and everybody's a genius. We're in an environment now where I think you're going to be rewarded, people are going to be rewarded for doing the work that's required to unearth some of these things. What are your thoughts on, I know what they're going to be, but yeah, I, sort of amplify that for me. I, I totally agree. I think we felt that way most of last year. We entered the year thinking that's how it was going to be. It kind of wasn't the case. And certainly in the first month of the year, it became the case, you know, later in February and certainly up until this moment. And again, I think we're on borrowed time here with this rally. And this is not about being bearish or bullish. This is about understanding the ramifications for what just occurred. So you have, you have a group of investors, again, not naming names, that never knew that this existed. And now it's been, quote, solved. Therefore, let's move on. Oh, and in the meantime, we got the Fed to wake up and realize that they're breaking the system. You can't give people credit for that, that are buying the market here based upon that, because they had no idea what was happening before. And this goes back to the lag impact of the Fed raising rates with what will be 4.75% in the past year and the implications and the lag effect that it's going to have. And I think that when we do start to see earnings start to come out for Q1, I do think we're going to get a downward revision in S&P earnings for 2023. And if I were to point to one thing that should lead the charts, it would be what do earnings look like? And the second question to that guy is, what does the multiple on those earnings look like? And mm -hmm. we won't know because I think we are dealing with a knockdown, drag out, longer type, type of malaise uh, that could go on for a few years, actually. Um, and that's separating the economy from the stock market. And I think that the understanding of kind of where we are, there are, I think there's a hundred billion dollars of commercial real estate loans that need to be refinanced this year. A bank a week ago might've been willing to look at it, certainly would underwrite it, but whatever they're going to underwrite it to now, I don't care where rates are, where treasures are, it's going to be at a higher rate. And of course that's, it because, is. And, that's, and I think those are the type of things that people need to realize. What is the aftermath of something like this? And listen, the, Government told us that who's paying for this? It's the banks. It's not yeah, you know what? That's banks. bullshit. You know yeah. who's going to pay for it. It's going to be the consumer because what are banks going to do, Danny? You tell me what banks are going to do in order to recoup those payments. Yeah, going to charge the consumer. That's that's correct, guy. So uh, you met this gentleman's father in Miami. So I don't know if you're familiar with Lance Allworth. Uh, he was course, nicknamed receiver. Bambi, great receiver. Yep. yep. Um, but Eric Lancelotti says, and and Jacob, if you can pull this up, I forget who it was, but one of the big banks reiterated a buy on Silicon Valley Bank. I think it was Goldman Sachs uh, a month or so ago. I and mean, this is not to cast aspersions, as it were, but. 
to your earlier point. I mean, there are a lot of people out there that get paid to sort of figure this shit out. And a lot of them don't do a particularly good job. And I'm not saying I'm one of those people that does a good job by any stretch, but at least we try to call out some of the bullshit that exists out there from time to time. And, you know, I continue to sort of harp on Jim and Vinny and Porter and you because, you know, you do the work and you're able to uncover and unearth these things. And I would submit again that you guys play a vital role in the market because you can alert people to what the F is going on and what they should be concerned about. Um, I, I don't need you to, to talk because I know you agree with me on that. Let's oh, take I have a, a look. thought right now as it relates to. So there was a lot of buy ratings, obviously. We've talked about don't don't rely on ratings. And I think most fundamental uh, investors don't do that. But let's talk about Goldman Sachs for a minute. And I'm not accusing them of anything. They didn't do anything that was illegal. But they were the group that actually bought this portfolio, this $20 billion <laughs> of, <laughs> of mortgage-backed securities treasuries from Silicon Valley and then announced the capital raise. What in, in Capital Markets 101, if you ever take that class, if that's an actual thing. That's Does it even maybe exist? Go, maybe I'll go teach that. Um, you would never announce um, a loss like that without actually you have already raised the capital and you were just announcing that you raised the capital. They, that self-fulfilled, uh, you know, a really a run on the bank. And that woke people up to kind of look. And when they realized that the rest of the portfolio would take the same kind of percentage, it, which would be, you know, north of $15 billion when the bank itself had $12 billion, that's pretty easy math to figure out. So to think that that could all transpire without there being any type of hiccup was crazy to me. But yes, um, listen, Wall Street is set up to make money in any way that they can. Um, they have research, they have banking, and all kind of works together. Yes, it's separate units. They don't talk to each other. Um, but you and I have been around the block enough, Guy, to know how that really works. So I agree. Matrix of Compassion, who's here every day. Some investors dived into the deep end of the pool and bought regional banks yesterday for a good profit today. Absolutely 100% true. And that might last for a bit longer. As a matter of fact, Matrix of Compassion, or MOC, <laughs> if you recall yesterday, I was on with Carter Braxton Worth, and we talked about exactly this. And Doug Cass was talking about this as well. We said that, hey, wait a second, you know, regional banks, which have underperformed in a significant way, you know, they may play catch up. And one of the conversations we had, Danny, um, was that regional banks could bounce here and the broader market could still do poorly. And I get the feeling that's what we're going to see. By the way, I don't think it's necessarily over to your earlier point. But these are going to be great trading vehicles, I would imagine. Absolutely. Saw that during during the financial crisis. Um, they became great buying opportunities and before that selling opportunities. Um, like I said before, it's one thing to talk about deposits and then you're holding or held to maturity of treasuries and mortgage-backed securities. It's another to really dig in and do granular work on these banks, some that have exposure to the commercial real estate market and the C&I books and lending and so again, I think yes, this is a relief rally, but you know, people need to wake up and really start to do the work. Not that banks could fail because there could be a run on them, but just in general, what do their loans look like and where are they exposed? And that work hasn't been done uh, in years, and I think it, it will be done. It's not just buying the KRE and the XLF. It's really there are ten longs and ten shorts in each of those indices if people really do their work. Guy, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I think that's right. Um, they're sort of set up that way, by the way, to sort of, um, I would imagine, to sort of mute some of the nonsense that goes on, sometimes successfully, sometimes not. We'll do an ETF conversation at another time. Uh, let's take a look at the VIX again. Not that we're trading the VIX. I'm, I'm personally, 
am surprised by how quickly we traded up north of 30 and then how quickly we came right back. I think we traded like 21 and a half, 22 today, because what I said yesterday uh, and what I would have said last week if we did it on Friday is what we've seen over the last year or so is these spikes tend to last longer than one day. Well, in this case, it didn't. But what are your thoughts on Vol here? Are people just being too glib? Is it that whole whistling past the graveyard? Because as I stated earlier, you know, I don't think it's necessarily over. Um, did the VIX get too expensive in one day and too cheap the next? Again, last week, this time you brought up this exact chart. It was at the bottom. Um, and it's, I said it's hard to tell what leads it, the horse, the horse or the cart. Mm -hmm. And I would imagine that on the middle of last week, the Silicon Valley stock was reacting prior to the VIX. I could be wrong. I don't have the date and time of that. So this is just a thermometer to me and a, and a scorecard. And that right there is kind of in the middle of no man's land or no woman's land, wherever. Um, and so that is, to me, again, uh, fundamentals will lead that. And it's just an inversion, in my opinion, of the S&P, but particularly probably the bank index of kind of what we're looking at here. So that is the vol of the day, of all of the week has been the banks. So again, I'm not going to try to gauge on that. I think more often than not, it's a lagging indicator of fundamental news that's already out there that is then being interpreted whether it should be important or not. In this case, it was deemed to be important, and that's why the VIX moved like it did. Before we take a look at yields, um, not that anybody particularly cares, but I'll share it with you since you brought up uh, woman or man. My junior year, one of the senior quotes from one of my friends was uh, the great lyric, no woman, no cry. Which I believe is a Peter Tosh song, but you know, I think Bob Marley (laughs) sang that. And folks, if you don't know, Danny Moses has one of the great singing (laughs) voices of all time. Take a look at let's take a look at Treasuries in the form of Go ahead, yeah, shedding tears. Go ahead, yeah, TPI. So again, this move is. I said it, and I'll say it to you. This is again, you know, I'm I'm teeing you up with this, but the U.S. bond market, the United States, last I look, is still the largest economy in the history of mankind, which should mean that the U.S. bond market, by definition, should be one of the most liquid assets um, and least volatile assets on the planet, and it's anything but. I mean, I said it, I'll say it again. It's trading like it's 135 million biotech stock with one drug in the pipeline. You shouldn't see moves like this. I'm just saying. There's something broken. But with that said, you know, we traded down to certain levels here in the 10-year. Does that mean anything to you? And let me ask you this. If, in fact, we continue this move lower, you know, what is it sort of – what does it augur? I mean, I would submit it ain't good. It ain't – the yields are going da- – the same way yields went up for the wrong reasons, I would submit they're going down for the wrong reasons. Thoughts on that? I mean, flight to safety, yes, mm-hmm. I get it. Uh, you don't want to be Japan, right? So the goal here is to avoid, I mean, that's the worst um, outcome that could happen, right? Is that we go into a very, very low growth environment, too much debt, we tried to print our way out of it, it didn't work. So you do not want the 10-year yields coming in a lot more, in my opinion, because the people that own stocks here want there to be growth and it won't match up. Believe me, that won't match up. So you want a steepening yield curve. You want the Fed to be done. You want the Fed to be cut, be cutting and you basically want the economy to be reacting in a, in a very good way. So if we're here next week, I don't think I'll be on next week, and we're at 3%, rest assured that the stock market is a lot lower. So I think there's a point where the 10-year yields can go, Guy, and you can still say holistically everything is, quote, okay. And then there's a level where it goes to you say, what happened? Mm-hmm. And I believe with the economy slowing potentially, or it looks like it is, 
with tax receipts potentially not as high as the government would think with a $32 trillion debt on the government's balance sheet. If you try to really do fundamental work, if the USA was a company, I tell you, read your Q's and K's and you really did the work, the United States, it'd be a, a little bit scary how we're going to finance these debts. So um, this this is way too volatile of a of a instrument. Um, and I get it. We're in a very volatile time. And that tells you why the VIX moves like, and there are treasury VIX, obviously we've, we've, we've talked about that in fixed income. You can see those instruments. I realize we don't have that chart here. Those are even crazier. What an important metric or what an important instrument this truly is, both from an input into how to evaluate and model a company, certainly within the, in the financial sector, and then what it really tells you. And, and, and so we're, we're kind of, again, this is, we're going to have an outcome here soon on one way or another. And I, I fear that the 10-year yields will be dropping a lot more from here, Guy. So Captain IPOC, um, hello, Captain. Are and, you picking and, these by names? Because these are these are amazing names. You're yeah, I'm okay. calling okay. them by names. Okay. The, captain, the, the, the Captain IPOC says, in all caps, by the way, no yelling here. Are you calling a crash guy with multiple question marks? Well, first of all, Captain, welcome. Second of all, I'm not one of those assholes. There are enough of them out there. Uh, I'm sure you can find them if you look. I don't call anything. What we try to do here, Danny, and I know you can speak to this, is try to sort of uh, illuminate what's going on and that you make the decisions on the back of it. You know, I don't call things. You know, I try to shed a light on things, which is entirely different. But there are people out there that get off on it and good for them. That's not my game. Let's take a look at the dollar because it goes hand in hand with obviously rates. And I said, I've been saying for a while that when rates started going higher, if the market were to sell off or if there were to be an event, you'd see a flight to quality in the form of treasuries, which would make yields go lower. But now I'm I'm scratching my head a little bit here because now you got the dollar going lower as well. So I thought you'd see that flight to quality in the dollar as well. Uh, I thought the dollar might decouple, but it's not happening. So now you have the dollar trending a little bit lower. Uh, you can see the moving average. We traded up to it effectively, failed at it. Um, what are your thoughts on that? Because you know what my next question is going to be. It's going to be around a shiny yellow uh, metal. But talk yeah. to me about the dollar real quick. Back to your days of thunder, cold trickles move to the outside. I think the ECB looks like they're still on course to raise rates, and and we're not uh, on the same course that we were. So around the track they go. And really, because the dollar is so exposed to the euro itself, the Dixie that you're looking at, Dixie. Well, I think that's really, I wouldn't look past that guy. That's pretty much all it is, I believe, is rate expectations. And so that could reverse course, obviously, if our economy is stronger than I think, and we become the sexiest game in town or continue to be the sexiest game in town from market, that dollar will move back through that resistance line, whatever that yellow line is there that you have there. I assume that's the, is that a 200-day? 200-day moving average. Yeah, it'll go right back to it. So again, I think, again, a lot of the charts that we're showing here are just byproducts of everything that's going on in it tells a story more than it does try to guide you on on how to act, in my opinion, Guy. Uh, Andy Molina, whose brothers made the major leagues, but Andy was unable. I'm sorry about that, Andy. Clearly, maybe you're like one of those Manning brothers that didn't have it in you. But Andy says, U.S. drone crash into a Russian jet. I, I didn't see that. I'll take your word for it. Um, While we're sitting here? That's news okay. to me. Okay. But anyway, so I just thought yeah. I'd mention that. And again, sorry about your inability to make it to the bigs. Let's take a look at gold here, Danny, because had a big day, given a little bit back. I am telling you, this sucker is ready to party. And I never use that term, but all the elements are in place here for gold to um, build upon what we've seen over the last couple of weeks. Thoughts? 
Yeah, it's go time. I really believe it's lined up perfectly. Um, when people start to question deposits in, in U.S. banks, yes, maybe we, quote, fixed it for the time being. But when you start to realize, really think about it, geopolitical risk, all the things, it's hard to see this not working, especially the bears on it have said, well, Fed's raising rates, you know, dollars moving higher. Uh, that's a huge um, holdback for gold. And certainly I, I can say that it should be or could be. Well, that's now pretty much gone. And if we go back to ending this tightening, and again, we go back to QE, which we effectively are doing here, I don't think gold really honestly has much of a top here. I think it will blow through 2000 and I think it will go much higher from there. I agree so from with a, that. I, I think better said, Guy, from a risk reward perspective, gold from here. And Guy, nobody outside of the central banks owns it. I've been that's asking right. people the last two, three days that I've been, friends that I've been seeing, like, do you own gold? No. Do you, do you know anyone that owns gold? Nope. Yep. I don't know. So until I get the cab driver or shoe shine telling me that they own gold, I'm, I'm going to stay there long and strong. You might not have heard. I'm not shining shoes no more. But that's another movie for another time. Yeah. Um, again, Matrix of Compassion. I'm just going to call them MOC for, you know, save time. Russian, and he's quotes, Russian fighter jet forces down U.S. drone over Black Sea after intercept. <laughs> I mean, all right. so now we're all cured. So can't make yeah, this shit I up. Guess we, I guess we should rally then because it didn't end in anything right. horrible. Okay. Perfect. You know, in terms of gold real quick, I just want to... Um, By the way, I'm another gonna, point gonna, for gold. I mean, things like that right there tell you you want to own it. Right. Go ahead. But here, just I did this for a living for a long time. And there are a lot of funds out there that um, obviously follow gold and trade gold, but they don't trade it like they trade other things. But their systems kick in at a certain point. So... For them, gold is not even on the radar screen right now. So to Danny's point, everybody, everybody might be talking a bullish game, but nobody's friggin' long it. And you can see that in something called the commitment of traders. What I'll tell you is, and this is somewhat counterintuitive, but the move in gold hasn't started yet. There's going to be a level where all these funds try to get in horizontally, and it's just not big enough a market to accommodate it. And it's probably... If I had a guess, you know, 150 or so dollars higher. So what you're going to see, in my opinion, is gold start to do the creep and then really have an explosive move to the upside once all these funds who don't watch gold on a minute-to-minute -minute basis try to get themselves in. That's just my two cents. Now, let's take a look at crude oil because you're seeing a bounce in some of these all-service names. Again, we drew that line. I don't know if it has any meaning whatsoever, but for whatever reason, crude continues to hold the lower end of this spectrum, not only by a hair here. You know my thoughts. I know your thoughts. I know Vinny and Porter's thoughts. I still think energy is a place to be. Before we 5,000 thoughts here, Danny. Yeah, listen, again, everything, every chart we've been through is at a really, really important level. Um, and for oil to go lower from here and to certainly drop below kind of the, quote, SBR price of 70 we really have to start to think about what's being incorporated into that, which would be a very large economic slowdown. Um, and in, if that's the case, you can check all the, forget energy stocks for a second. Let's talk about the S&P. But I'm still looking, and I don't do the kind of work that um, energy managers do, and certainly that Porter and Vinny have done on individual names, but they're screaming, obviously cheap, maybe for a reason. But when you have things trading at two times EBITDA that are and other companies that are returning 30 to 50% mm -hmm. of their capital back to shareholders. I mean, it doesn't have to last a long, long time to make money in that type of environment. So I think energy stocks will be, you know, are, are getting ignored here or thrown out. Yet 
again, if you're bullish on the economy or a, even a soft landing person, it's hard to ignore energy. And I get it. A lot of macro factors and drilling in Alaska, which will take obviously years to go through that pipeline and supply that's coming on. The CapEx is still not there to meet that these, this type of demand. And so either the demand falls and we have bigger problems, right? Or the supply ends up catching up, which will take years. So I would still be owning energy, but I would own the right companies with the perfect balance sheets. Dick Dallas, which is a quite unfortunate name, says, if we go into recession, uh, energy goes lower, or I'm paraphrasing, and he's probably right. Um, but who knows? I, I don't necessarily think it's it's um, it's a foregone conclusion that either happens. But Darren Ristick, Ritzick says. Doctor? Doctor? DR? Doctor, doctor. Okay. All right. Guy and Danny, we need the explanation, and we're not going to do it here. We will do it, by the way, of why you'd rather own gold through PHYS. I will tell you this. If what I think will happen happens, um, GLD could rally and then completely collapse. I think where you want to be is the actual physical gold, an instrument that actually has gold behind it, gold backing it. GLD, in my opinion, if you really read through some of this shit, is a flawed instrument. Now, Danny, I know you have thoughts on that um, real yeah, quick, but we'll do it in depth at some point. Yeah, it's a closed-in fund. They they have the assets that are stated as the NAV. Uh, it's very close to what the NAV should be. And again, to Guy's point, GLD won't have that type of collapse until it's 100% higher from here. You can use GLD, but when people go to actually claim physical gold and like turn this paper in for gold, mm -hmm. that's your problem. I don't know if I want to be around if we ever get to that point where that happens anyway. <laughs> so again just knowing what you own. And there are, there are ways to buy physical bars and that obviously hasn't happened yet either. So, Well, the central banks are doing it and it's something, yeah. a little a little French word called force majeure, but that's a, <laughs> that's yeah, a the different proof. theme for a different show. The fact that I was able to use Days of Thunder and I got to tell you something, I might use it on Fast Money tonight because that's effing brilliant, by the way. It really yeah, is. Very good, Cole. The boy don't have the balls to pass me on the outside. Well, we're going to see next week who's got the balls and who doesn't, but that's for another time. Uh, we're going to look at Vinny and Danny and Ron Biscardi had a conversation, so check that out. It's going to be in our, I guess, our, our risk reversal page. Jacob, help put, put, put something in there so I can tell the folks where to find it. But Danny Moses, um, I believe you were with Vinny and Ron and Biscardi Cooper. and another yep. individual had a great conversation yesterday that you can find in the podcast store. I want to thank Danny Moses for joining us. People, can I tell you something? You're like friggin' Batgirl. And I mention this not because you look like her. Yvonne DiCarlo, by the way, was a beautiful woman. It's because, you know, Batman would have seven episodes. And then on the eighth episode, Batgirl would come in. And they created this scarcity factor where people were clamoring for Batgirl. That's what people are doing with Danny Moses. They're effing clamoring. I clamor. I don't even know what it means and I do it. But that's it for Market Call. I want to thank CME Group. Uh, and by the way, I will emphasize, go back and listen to the conversation we had with Terry Duffy. And Terry correctly said that if a lot of these characters had used futures to hedge their books, we wouldn't be in the situation that we're in. Uh, CME Group, where risk meets opportunity. Thank you. And obviously, thank FactSet, our data provider. I will be back tomorrow, which is Wednesday, the 15th, with Carter Braxton Worth. By the way, the Rangers play tonight, Capitals in Madison Square Garden. I believe they're starting to get themselves together. We'll talk about it on tomorrow's show. Thank you, Danny Moses. Thank you, Guy.
Ron Biscardi, the CEO of iConnections. Thank you everyone for being with us today. We are very excited to have a very prestigious panel of experts on banking and certainly financial crises. Um, so several of these guys need no introduction, but I'll quickly tell you who they are. So today we have Danny Moses, founder of Moses Ventures, private investor and advisor, and also co-host of the On The Tape podcast, which iConnections is very proud to be a sponsor of. Uh, and Danny's also the former head trader of Front Point Partners Financial Services team, which of course was featured in The Big Short. Uh, also with us today is Vinny Daniel from Seawolf Capital, um, which is a family office, used to be a hedge fund focused primarily on the financial services sector. Uh, Danny oh. is partnered with Porter Collins. And just like Danny, um, Vinny and Porter were also uh, a part of uh, capitalizing on the housing crisis during the GFC uh, and were also chronicled in the big short. And we also have with us today an iConnections member, uh, manager Ravi Chopra, founder and CIO of Azura Capital, a fundamental long short equity strategy focused on the US financial services sector. Uh, Ravi has spent the last 20 years analyzing financial services companies and successful, successfully managed through the 2001 uh, dot com cra crash, as well as the GFC. And I now know is generally known as the best dressed man on Wall Street <laughs> and li then living up to it even today. Yes. So anyway, guys, thank you all for being with us and uh, and for doing this on short notice. We really appreciate it. Um, obviously, we've had one heck of a ride uh, over like in, in less than a week, at least for most of us, it's been less than a week. I have a feeling you guys are going to say you've been watching this for for quite a bit longer. Um, but I thought we would start with Danny. Danny, if you could just tee up for us what exactly uh, the situation was uh, that sort of played out last week, and then we can get into what did the government do really over the weekend and today um, to try and get their arms around this thing, just to sort of level set this whole sure. conversation. And I'll bring Vinny and Ravi in on that as well. And um, I guess it was 96 hours ago, you know, since the world changed. But I would back up before that. I would say that Silvergate was kind of the kind of first warning that a bank, obviously, in this type of environment could fail, given the product that it was catering to. But I think people kind of set that aside. That, that was just crypto. And then um, soon after, we saw the news out of Silicon Valley Bank. And just to back up a little bit, um, this was right in front of everyone for several quarters. Um, banks have to put out 10 Qs like any companies and 10 Ks. And so if anyone really dug through, you would have seen uh, many banks actually that have this type of exposure uh, to mortgage-backed securities, uh, treasuries, and that's what banks do. They go out and they take their deposits, which are liabilities, and they go out and do things with them to earn a return. In the case of Silicon Valley, just call it bad risk management, bad everything, bad timing. Uh, they got two big and long duration assets. Um, and I would say the difference just to clarify, and these are treasuries and mortgage-backed securities, implicitly somewhat guaranteed by the government, I guess, if you want to say that, which, which they really are. And so from a credit risk perspective, this is more duration mismatch um, of liabilities, if you want to call them, leaving their balance sheet in the form of deposits, specifically with Silicon Valley, which catered to venture capital firms, which in the last few years have had trouble raising capital and had to dip into their cash on hand to 
finance operations, they were accelerating on the way out in terms of deposits leaving them, which made the mismatch look even worse. And it came to a head, um, you know, because you can only hold these assets so long before the ratios start dipping to a place where you're going to be forced to raise capital. And this is not the right call to go into the regulatory environment for banks sub 250 billion and where that bifurcation takes place because this could happen. This was on its way for, for months. So cut to the chase, um, middle of last week, um, they announced that they were going to raise $2.25 billion to basically fill what tended to be a bigger hole, but they were claiming a $20 billion sale of these securities, which created a $1.8 billion loss. Therefore, that $2.25 billion should suffice. Well, Goldman Sachs was the advisor uh, to them. Obviously, we found out today that Goldman Sachs was the actual buyer of those <laughs> one point of that uh, $20 billion book. We saved that for another show as well. Um, and they rarely do you see in capital markets, and I tweeted this Capital Markets 101, that you announce something like this uh, without the capital actually being raised. And everyone on, on this call knows what wall crossing is. And I assumed, like any of you did, I'm sure when you saw the news that General Atlantic was going to buy half a billion dollars and there's a preferred offering and that this and the other, you just assumed that the deal was already spoken for. I, you would never see something. So when they went on the, quote, virtual roadshow uh, late last week, it was apparent that the money was not committed to General Atlantic yet. It was conditional upon the rest of the capital being done. And then it became clear again, which was in front of all of us for the last several quarters, that it was a bigger than a $1.8 billion hit that they were looking at. That was just the realized hit. And that's kind of how we got here. And then it became all of you on the phone and calling your funds and where you allocate and, and Vinny and Ravi and so forth already knowing this, calling analysts and saying, okay, just want to make sure I got this right. Run me a screen of banks <laughs> that hold this type of asset. And then it was easy to figure out. And that's why you've seen the follow-on effect on First Republic and, and Signature Bank, which has a whole nother level of crypto attached to it. So that's my take. I'll, I'll turn to Vinny here a little bit to take that a little bit further, but that was kind of the opening setup here, you know, prior to going into what the government actually did. But uh, Vinny, maybe you want to go there. Thanks, Danny. And, and thanks, Ron, for setting this up. A uh, few things I would just add. Uh, let's try to keep it simple in many respects. When, when, when you take interest rates from, from zero to where we are now or were in 5%, um, there's a high, high probability that somewhere, somewhere, someone is going to be blowing up. We just don't know where it's going to be. And as Danny said, and we were speaking about this before, but Ravi is that, you know, as old financial services hacks who, who look at Q's and K's, this was readily foreseen. Like, like when, when you looked at the balance sheet and you could see how underwater they were, as well as how levered they were. And yes, while it was not credit risk directly, um, that still doesn't change the fact that the, that the, the, the balance sheets were underwater. So, so all of us were wondering, you know, if and when they were going to raise capital. And it really was a question of whether the regulators were going to see what we saw and, or whether they were going to allow them to get away with it. And I think the answer for select banks was no. Um, the thing that, that interests me going forward uh, as I think about this uh, is that I think the cost of capital for everyone relative to the risk-free rate of return, because it's very possible the risk-free rate can decline, and I actually think it might, is going to go up. And, and as a result, I think everyone needs to think that their capital costs, whether, whether you're 
um, an allocator, whether whether you're funding a company, it, it really doesn't matter. I think at the end of the day, particularly on the corporate side, your cost of capital is going to go up because in general, banks are going to have to earn their return back. Um, so that is something I think we all have to take it into account and consideration as we think about markets. Um, Ravi, why, why don't you give us your take on it? And then I've got a question or two. Yeah. Thanks, Ron. And, and Danny, Vinny, thanks for letting me be with your panel. It's great to see you both. I would just maybe accentuate a couple of things that both Danny and Vinny said. And when I think about this cycle versus the GFC, and the recency bias is always to go back to the GFC, right? That cycle was about credit, right? And, and we know that credit is, is the first uh, the first harm, and then it's liquidity that eventually kills a financial institution. This time around, it wasn't the credit risk; it was the, it was the interest rate risk that is killing the industry. And maybe credit will come uh, in the future, but ultimately, it's liquidity and and, uh, and 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 interest rate risk taken together. And when I think about how we got here, it, it really stemmed from the pandemic, right? It stemmed from five trillion dollars of QE. And if you put it into perspective, right, in the same way that consumers had money burning a hole in their pockets and they went out and bought Pelotons and they went out and bought boats and houses, these CFOs and treasurers also had $5 trillion burning a hole in their pocket. If you, in context, that's a 35% increase to system-wide deposits, right? And for certain banks, right, the crypto banks, Silvergate increased 8x in size, Silicon Valley increased 3x in size in two years. Right. Banks don't triple in size unless they buy two other banks. Right, it's, it's very abnormal for that to happen. Signature, the same thing. And so there was a select number of banks that just hoovered in a lot of this $5 trillion, And instead of going and buying Pelotons and boats, they went out and bought securities. And, and I think that the magnitude we're talking about, Silicon Valley Bank was a $60 billion bank that went out and added $100 billion of securities. I think the magnitude is something that is really what created this problem. And of course, not one person, not one bank, not one regulator contemplated that, hey, we could actually see rates go up 500 basis points within two years after the pandemic, because the recency bias was after the global financial crisis, rates couldn't go up for the better part of a decade. It was so hard to finally get them up to, to two and two and a half percent, and then they had to cut again, right? So it just wasn't in the psyche. And if you look at the stress tests, right, the, the stress testing that they've been so proud of for almost 15 years, right, what do they do? They stress test equity markets down 50%. They stress down commercial real estate down 30%. Housing, residential housing down 30%. They look at unemployment going to 10%. They look at GDP negative 6%. What do rates do in their scenario? 10-year yield goes from 70 bips to 60 bips in the first year of their scenario. They didn't conceive of the idea they could go to 5%. And that's why the regulators were asleep at the switch, the treasurers were asleep at the switch, and didn't conceive that rates could go up this much. And we sit here today and losses, just unrealized losses in the securities portfolios, both in the available for sale, which is backed out of most regulatory capital, and held to maturity portfolios, which is accounting, which is also backed out of most re regulatory capital, is over $600 billion in the industry, which is about 15% of the capital equity, the common equity of the, of the industry. And if you think about 15%, that's not all that dissimilar to the loss content that 
we saw from lending portfolios as a percentage of tangible common equity in 08. So, so the size is there, but then the question is like, can you hold these things to maturity or not? And I think what's changed a little bit in the world from yesteryear is in the same way that bankrate.com, my, my mom just turned 80 on Friday and she's not financially sophisticated, but I've taught her to go on Bankrate and get the high CD. So she can brag to me she just got a 4.5% CD, right? The speed of information, the ability to do that is much quicker. You can press a button. In the same way, we now have things like social media. And I can I can read Danny and Vinny's tweets, and I can also uh, observe people who are VC firms and others who are getting concerned about things like funding and, and, and deposit risk at banks like Silicon Valley. It can start to feed itself on itself in a way that I think was less likely in years prior. And so as these gentlemen already pointed out, this was already out there. It just seemed like people started to care. And then you start intersecting that with banks that have 90% of their deposits uninsured and, and depositors never really thought they could lose money, right? They, that you're as a depositor, you're always money good. The idea that you could lose money, I think, is a, is a new one. And, and so uh, that creates a, a run. And I think what happened last night, and I'll, I'll come to a close here, is what I think I wanted to hear, right? What I f- would have felt better about was what was called the TAG program, the tre- Treasury Account Guarantee. Basically, let's guarantee all deposits, and I can feel good about leaving them where they are. That didn't happen. And unless that happens, and it might take an act of Congress for that to happen, then I think every corporate treasurer, every wealthy person is going to sit there and say, why do I have a dollar more than $250,000 in account? I could press a button and go sweep it to a money market fund. I can press a button and sweep it to a GSIFI. And I think that's what you saw in the market today. Let me just add, these trends were already happening Jamie Dimon spoke last week at a conference and, or, you know, to a bunch of investors and talked about 27% of the funds in the system have already left traditional deposits. This stuff was happening. I just want to, I'm going to get these numbers off a little bit, but the math was pretty cool. simple on Silicon Valley. They had, Vinny, correct me if I'm wrong, 12 to $13 billion in equity capital and effectively an 18 to $20 billion loss on their portfolio, of which they only realized 1.8. So it was evident and right in front. So when they came to the table, with this, the next question was, what else do you have? It was just a horrible way that they went about this process. I'm not saying it could have ended any differently. I think it could have been a little bit smoother and kind of put it. So I just wanted to put that in perspective. But back to Robbie's point, and and this is where another thing that I think going forward is you're going to see, I would actually hope you see a very thorough regulatory review of how banks are regulated. Um, A lot of the banks created in the middle when they owned very low coupon strike mortgage-backed securities and treasuries, set it up into a held to maturity bucket, which basically said, not to pick on them, but but, but they just didn't want to mark, mark it. And the regulators kind of didn't need to put it in, in, in capital ratios. But as we said, like guys like us look at footnote six or footnote seven, wherever it's sitting, and we see the unrealized mark. And I think one of the issues that happened with Civ B is that we're like, okay, you plug the hole on the available for sales securities, and I apologize to get wonky, but you have this held to maturity book where if I marked it to market, you need to raise more money. And so any astute investor was sitting there saying, no mas, I don't want to know Roberto Duran style. I'm not doing this until you fill that hole, or at least that's what I would have done as an institutional investor. Um, 
And I agree with you, Danny, they should have plugged the hole, but I don't think they really dotted their I's and covered the T, you know, dotted the I's and crossed the T's in terms of, I think they thought they could pull a wool over our eyes and they could it and they did it. And that and this was, and this was, you know, different product, but same type of scenario in Blackstone and their private real estate fund, Starwood and their private real estate fund, they've been hitting max redemptions of 5% a quarter now for roughly three quarters. If that had been a bank, there'd have been a run on deposits there, right? And so this had already beginning. It's not just treasuries and mortgage-backed securities. If anything, it's actually, that's my point, when people start to look at banks now and really look at Q's and K's before they take yeah. them on you know, as a, as a partner, that, that to me has changed. And Robbie's point, and these two numbers have nothing to do with each other necessarily, but the trends are the same. Before QT ended, which let's be clear, it's over, okay? 600 billion was drained. It went from 8.95 trillion to 8.35 trillion. I'm not saying that's the reason that the cause and effect, but Robbie just mentioned the number of 600 billion of basically uh, assets. So the whole point Robbie made about, you know, stimulus and, and QE and all the stuff coming into the system, it's somewhere, it had to go somewhere. So I find those numbers somewhat amusing. I would just- Can I, can I, can can I just can ask you? one 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 question quickly? So. The, the idea that there were analysts that were looking at all these screens and you could see that these banks were approaching like a, a big problem. If you're the Fed and you know you've got this interest rate program that is a giant shift, right? We haven't done this for a decade. And now all of a sudden you've decided you have to fight inflation. You're going to be raising rates and like they're sticking with it, right? I mean, they have they have not They've not gone back at all. Uh, how have they not? Isn't there someone at the Fed who is looking at the same data? I mean, we've got Robbie's mom, you know, looking at, at bankrate.com. Who's the person at the Fed who's supposed to be looking at these same data screens to do the same basic analysis? Because it, it certainly seems as if they weren't. Because if you look at Powell's testimony from a week ago, it's like he's basically saying everything looks fine, and a week later we're we're doing a giant bailout. I mean, any thoughts on that? Like, how how are the regulators this asleep at the switch? I mean, it certainly seems like they were. Ron, can I jump in on this one? Sure. I think it's a function of like, it's not a single person at the government, right? Jay Powell's job is not supervision of the banks. I mean, technically he's the head, right? But there's actually a vice chair of supervision of the banks, and then there's a whole host of staff members that actually work on this at that level. And then there's the OCC, there's the FDIC, there's all these other local regulators that actually do the work. Jay Powell has a million other things going on, and he's not necessarily thinking about that as the first thing on his mind. He's got inflation to deal with. But I think the point you bring you, you, you uh, bring up is actually a fantastic one, which is tremendous egg on the face of both the regulators and the rating agencies, right? The rating agencies still had you know, A ratings until they downgraded Silicon Valley Bank that day, which sent it further into the death spiral. Yeah. And, and of course, we talked about the regulators not stressing for interest rate risk. I do believe an, out, an outgrowth of this, just like it was from the GFC, will be tremendously increased regulation going forward. And I think a couple of the easy low-hanging fruit was, one, we we raised the, the stress testing limit from $50 billion to $250 billion when we did... Uh, regulatory reform a few years ago, right? We can go back down to, to 50. And a simple thing is, and I think one thing that regulators and rating agencies start looking at is, what's your actual TC to TA, your tangible common equity? It's not excluding 
your mark-to-market losses because the biggest banks don't get to exclude them. I think they're going to just lump everything together, including health to maturity portfolios, and say, what's your actual capital ratio going forward? Because we don't want to let this happen again. And that's something, by the way, that some of the European regulators do currently. And a few things I would add. Uh, great points, Ravi. First, and I like giving proposals, in my opinions, because I know I could throw out something that might be considered controversial, and absolutely no one in Washington, D.C. is going to listen to me. The first thing they should do is separate regulation from the Federal Reserve. That's the first thing I would do right there. Because as, as Robbie said, there's probably a tremendous amount of conflict of interest that when you when a staff or someone, I'll bet back six, nine months ago, staffers uh, at the various regulatory bodies, whether FDIC, OCC, brought these issues up to the table. That's my guess and said, hey, Bank XYZ has this issue, Bank X has that issue. And somehow, some way it gets pushed under the under the rug, mainly because politics go into play. You got to keep in mind these CEOs and executives are very powerful and they can browbeat back. And the poor staffers, like almost every other risk manager that sits in, in any um, fund or, or in the like, gets, gets browbeaten and they get pushed down. So my guess is there was a lot of that. If you could simply... And, and I agree with Ravi, this whole idea, and this I apologize for the longiness, but when, when they measure capital on a core tier one basis, you, like guys like us look at just simple, how much tangible equity do you have? How many assets do you have? And are you, is it, is it too light or too heavy? Um, there needs to be more robust regulation. Uh, and it would be helpful if you separated the regulatory bodies from the people who are monitoring the monetary aggregates and controlling the monetary aggregates, it would make life a lot easier uh, and a lot better, in my opinion. And I would add to that, that if the Bernanke that we used to call on the trading desk was still, he would have cut rates today. He probably would have cut rates 100 basis points. And we saw this, this is a buildup of everything from 2009, 10, 11, 12. When we tried QE1, we had to do QE2, the market froze. Reverse repo blew up a couple of years ago. We reversed everything. There was going to be a point where something was going to break. This just happened to be the big, I mean, you had two very large banks go out of business. And so it. So I think to Ravi and Vinny's point, there will be regulatory action, whether that people like it or not. And so here we go uh, again. And that goes back to the point we made early on here, just in terms of cost of capital, of, of having to charge more and risk weighting these assets differently or liabilities, you'd say, differently. So- um, also, I should have mentioned this at the start, uh, but if anyone has a question, just put it into the chat and we'll take a look at them and uh, and try and get to them. Um, so, guys, I think you can all see the uh, the questions there in the chat. Um, this first one is quite long. Uh, so from Yasser Malik, I haven't looked into it, uh, but were traditional counterparty risk management measures like CDS spreads and any other ratios help you see the spike. Just curious, as often counterparty limits don't have detailed look at financials, I assume each fund manager in private would have looked at their own treasury providers in the same way as public, but that assumption seems to have been misplaced. Any thoughts on this? What ratios on a dashboard for a counterparty like this would have been flashing red? Anyone want to take that? Widening spreads on mortgage-backed securities and treasuries going down and yields going up was would, would be enough in something like this as far as counterparty risk. I mean, 
whether there was a one-off like Credit Suisse that had their own issues that had nothing to do with this. People do track that. During, during the global financial crisis, we were glued to fixed income in 2005 and six to see what was going to happen in equities. It took much longer than you think it's always going to take. And then it all happens at once. What is a movie that won 27 Oscars, everything, everywhere, all at once or whatever it was called. That's, that's exactly the kind of the theme here of what's been happening. So there were always our nuggets of information that are out there that show you what's happening. And to the point, Robbie and Vinny can take where mortgage-backed securities are trading and literally put on a spreadsheet and apply it to the portfolio, which to your point you made, Ron, what are the regulators doing? And Ravi and Vinny just told you that these banks that aren't the big banks don't have to do that. That's a mistake. And so again, right in front of you. And so there's a lot of ways to look at that. I mean, we talk about stocks outside of the banking system. The fixed income where their bonds are trading is always the best thing you can find, so to speak. Um, and I was not tracking Ravi and Vinny. I don't know if you were tracking some of the CDS in, in, in this world, but um, you could certainly track where their paper was trading, that was easy. That was sitting on their balance sheet. So, I don't know if Vinny and Ravi have any other comments on that. The, but. the only, th the only thing I would add, it's kind of, it's kind of an odd uh, twist, is that, you know, the banking system is supposed to be, particularly deposits, supposed to be sacrosanct. You're not really supposed to worry about your deposits that sit at a bank simply because we view that as cash. Now, I understand there's a percentage of uninsured, and it's like, I, personally, I think that's where some of the regulations went, went awry. Um, but in general, it, you could have looked at things like junior preferreds as well as some of the, some of the debt levels, Danny. But, but the reality is, is people who are running their businesses, they naturally assume and understandably assume that the banks that where they're doing business are fine because there are regulations behind it and and there's capital behind it and there's there's insurance behind it. And that's where I think there was a real flaw in the model in that this was not supposed to happen where, where you know, two days or, or a week ago, Silicon Valley, yeah, the stock's down, but so is everything else down, particularly in tech land. And you went from a stock that was trading at $200 to zero in three days, right? That's not supposed to happen. And if, and if the regulators were doing their job from the from jump, it wouldn't have happened. So, I mean, I, I'll say as a small business owner, like I have a little bit more sophistication maybe than the average small business owner. Um, so, you know, when I chose a bank, I was thinking about the credit worthiness of a bank, but I think that is very rare. I think most small businesses, they're just like, they're banking with, you know, a place where they they have the right relationship to move their business forward like that's the primary probably more so than they're certainly not looking at you know credit default swap spreads on on the bank before they choose it i think for the most part like is it possible to get the system to the point where your bank is more of a utility to the economy than it is you know cuz like i think and, you know, you're talking about Silicon Valley Bank, where you had a ton of sophistication around it, right? Like all that money was venture money, or certainly a lot of it. They had access to the right minds. I, I think those people were just thinking like, this is how I'm paying my bills, right? Money comes in, I collect my revenue, I send out money to pay my bills, run payroll. They're not thinking that I'm actually lending money to this institution, and it's going to go take some level of risk with it. Is it feasible to move away from 
a system, the, the kind of system we have, or create another branch of it that where for the average business owner, I would I would be happy personally to pay the bank, not make any interest on the on the cash, but just pay the bank for the service of keeping the money safe and allowing me to conduct my business. Is that even in the head of of anyone in Washington, that kind of a concept? Because I feel like in other countries, they have gotten to this, maybe not by calling it a utility, but like in Canada, what do they have? Six banks? We have 2,000. I mean, like the six banks are not going out of business in Canada, right? Like no matter what happens, they're not letting those banks go under. I don't know if you guys <clears throat> want to answer that. Rob, you want to give it a crack? I, I have my thoughts on that too, so. Go ahead, Danny. Go first. I'll go ahead. No, no. I was just thinking that that's great on paper, Ron, and you and you saw what happened in you know 2008, where you take you know what are insured deposits effectively, and then you go and prop trade with them, and that's not what the intent was, and that was people were punished not enough, obviously. Um, and to your point, should they just be some type of, some type of utility, basically non for profit? That's not the way the incentive. That's not the way the system is really obviously set up at this moment. Um, and that, and that it is what it is. So we need to adapt. Right before we got on this call, Vinny and I had Porter Collins on the phone, and you know, I'm very anti bailout in general because I believe that the whole moral hazard thing that's been created. I think things should clear at the right price. I was very frustrated, obviously, back in you know 2009, 10, and 11 that we didn't clear things, and we've allowed this thing to kind of build up. That being said, on a relative basis, in this particular case, Ron, I have pure sympathy, uh, empathy for any small business, to your point, the last thing they should be worried about or thinking about is that the money, that they have thousands of employees. And I think that's where the White House finally started to figure out, hold on a second, this this does hurt average Joe, because yeah, the top part, you want to teach, maybe you want to teach people a lesson in Silicon Valley, but the truth is, these are thousands and thousands of businesses and tens of thousands of jobs. And so it's just not right. So they, to Robbie's point, he made, I think at the very beginning, if you just guarantee all deposits, the bank would have gone out. Everyone would have said the bank deserved it, but the repercussions obviously, but what the current system was, is that it's just not fair. And I believe companies were missing payroll. I mean, that's not right. That's not yeah. kind of the American way. And so I know a lot of people go back and forth, but relative to everything that we've done from a bailout perspective in the last, we're not going to do that. And so, you know, I know there's a question in here about contagion, and you know how do how do we stop that kind of how do we stop our banks a buying opportunity? And unfortunately, I think that the bigger banks this is not what Washington wants. The bigger banks are going to get bigger um, right now, and, I and that I think is going to be the big challenge here uh, over the next few years. Is how do you come in and Ron to your point? How do you kind of separate these banks and maybe you know good bank bad bank so to speak, which is what everyone tried to do at the end of the global finance or during the global financial crisis. Don't look here. Let's take this bank and put it here. This is the lending vehicle. This isn't. So I could go on and on, but I think that's kind of where we're headed here. So um, Vinny, Ravi, please chime in on that. Yeah. Thanks, Dan. I, I agree with everything you said. And and, and maybe just to add on, you know, there was a question earlier about counterparty risk and what indicators to look for. It's really not rocket science, right? Like these banks' securities portfolios are five, six-year duration portfolios. Rates go up three, 400 basis points, you just do that math and you have a 20, 25% type loss in the portfolio. And to your point, Ron, does that mean that that's a highly credit worthy bank anymore? And so far the rules have said, yes, they are as credit worthy today as they were two years ago before this rate movement happened. 
And you have to ask yourself, does that make sense? The answer is probably not, right? And so I, I think in terms of, look, we, we, the, the, the banking system is by nature a fractional banking system. We, It's kind of like the US dollar. It's not backed by gold, but as long as we all kind of are in it together, then it still works. And the same thing with the banks, as long as there's confidence around each other, we're going to keep the deposits there together, then it works. And I think if you reduce, if you don't do that, then you're going to have lending that doesn't happen in the economy, which would not be great. Uh, but the reality is that returns for the industry now have to come down because we now have to address this problem that we somehow put our blinders on and pretend it didn't happen or was not happening. And so what that means most likely is capital raises that will come over time, right? Maybe not this week, but over time, they'll, there's 15% of, of lost equity to the system from these, these moves, these marks, then they probably have to raise some modicum of that over the coming period. We will, again, not look at back things out and for health and maturity counting or anything along those lines. And we'll have to think really hard about liquidity and hold a lot more liquidity, much like the big banks do for the smaller banks as well. All at all of that, and we're going to put more money into the deposit fund, right? The fund that guarantees deposits, right? So that's going to mm-hmm. cost more money. All that means a less profitable banking system going forward, but it, but hopefully a safer one, to your point, so that your small business and others don't have to worry. Yeah. I do think, like, if... if I do think it means they're probably going to have to charge more. That goes back to my initial thing of cost of capital. And what I would like to see is the banking system. And I know everyone has felt like they were well capitalized, much better capitalized during the, during the prior to the Great Recession. And that is all well and good. The problem is, is they lumped on a lot of assets. I would rather see a more robust banking system where they're not allowed to do that as much as they did, particularly when you take on the risk. And if that means they have to charge all of us a little bit more to make their return on capital, because that's the way our system is set up, so be it. So if we have a healthier banking system where they can make an adequate return on less leverage, I'm fine with that, right? Um, if, and that means they're going to have to charge more for leverage. And I and and so one of the things that really bothers me is that there's these large, large pools of capital in asset management firms that are levered between five and eight to one, right? And they're getting their leverage primarily from the banking system, right? I think they need to charge more. I think they need to charge a lot more, right? And as a result, maybe the leverage of the entire wealth management, asset management system needs to come down. And that'll be like not tomorrow, because you can't do it tomorrow, but over the next two, three years. And that'll be a really good thing for the health of this country overall going forward, my opinion. So uh, obviously, we've got an audience of uh, fund managers and and pools of capital being allocated across the uh, investment world in our audience. So an obvious question here, what are the risks and, and opportunities here? How do you how can you capitalize on this? And and also, what do you think the real likelihood is of systemic contagion harming the real economy? Anyone want to jump in mm-hmm. on that one? Then you want to go? And- well, I, I think the contagion, I don't know if I necessarily call it contagion, but obviously on an all else being equal basis, we're going to have a slower economy as a result of everything we just said, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so I... I also think that we need to ensure 
as Ravi said, and nip it on the butt, any fears of a deposit run within the banking system. We, he said, we live in a leveraged fractional banking system. You cannot have the fear that your money parked in a bank is going to go to dust. Um, we have to stop that. And, and, uh, to his, and so as a result, I'm hoping they get ahead of it. What they did on Sunday helped, but I agree with Ravi, it did, it did not completely eliminate the, the potential risk of it. Uh, yes, you will be, banks will be backstop and they will have the availability to get credit if they're on deposit runs. But that's what Ravi was speaking about in terms of guaranteeing all deposits, which is a very yeah. somewhat controversial, although, although we could have a discussion on it, but but there are two different things right now, what we have, and, and they probably need to address that. You Might can't, be an act of Congress though, right? Yeah, you can't guarantee all deposits until you get the banks in order. If you guarantee all the deposits, they'll go haywire with them because then they'll right. realize that, you know, I think that they'll use that as an excuse to go out and take more risk potentially. I would say bringing it back kind of to the macro view coming out of financials, I would say that this has been a financialized, you know, economy for decades. I mean, everything is really tied to, to the financial system. So it starts and ends with the banks. We can pretend it doesn't, but it's the, it's the root of everything, good and bad. When you think about auto loans and student loans and credit card, you know, uh, securitizations, and those all have a cost of capital. And these are the banks that lend to the companies to go out and get those loans and then package them and sell them. And it's all related, right? It's all kind of related. From a macro perspective, um, if the Fed is indeed done, and this is the quote, rally, if that way you want to call it from where it was today, um, Fed was going to stop at some point for the reasons of stopping here is, is not great. And it couldn't come at a worse time um, just to pull it back even further when you know we're looking at the $32 trillion of debt and so forth. So to Vinny's point, if the economy starts to slow down sooner and harder as a result of this, the picture just becomes harder and harder. And so I could, I don't want to use this call for that, but I could paint that picture. There's always opportunities. And I think that companies in general, especially with yields coming back down again, that pay the dividends, that have paid dividends for decades, that know how to manage through, that don't blame the Fed, that don't use inflation as an excuse and just manage their businesses and have pricing power just to kind of bring it back. There are great things that are to own here. And the last thing, and I'll let Ravi comment, is that I think the passive investing uh, era, obviously it's never going away. It's a massive part of the business. And most people that are on this call, like active investing, I'm sure for the most part, and I know Ravi, Vinny and myself do, and I always bring this up and, you know, you know, you know, it's really enough with buying the XLF or shorting the XLF. I mean, if you look at what comprises it and so forth, there's so many longs and shorts within that. But I think this is a real wake up call for active money management. I think it's a wake up call for bottom up fundamental analysis. And there'll always be things to buy. And Ron, you just made me think about something, you know, when you should banks become, you, you know, utilities. And the truth is, in a perfect world, yeah, we pay our utilities. They're public companies. They're they pay a dividend out. They have an ROE, which which they're required. They're supposed to pay do you know provide a service to us. So yes, in the in the perfect world, yeah, I would think so. So anyway, I probably went off a little bit on a tangent there, but from a risk, there's always opportunity. I guess is what I'm saying. So I just think this pulled forward the inevitable of the Fed stopping and then getting a real look at what's really happening in the economy. Ravi. Yeah. Thanks. One of the things that, that Vinny said earlier was leverage is going to have to come down in the system. The cost of credit is going to have to go up. You think about a bank going out and lending to a commercial mortgage read, which is then, you know, making loans to developers to refurbish buildings, stuff like that. Well, 
I have to imagine with everything we're seeing, the cost of all of that is going to go higher and and make it that much more expensive to to do all those activities. So I I think all of that conspires for some, as as he pointed out, economic slowdown relative to what we would have had otherwise. I think that within that, I also agree with Danny that this is probably one of the, the best last year, this year have been one of the best opportunities for stock picking I've seen since the GFC. Uh, you see, you know, days like today, things that actually make sense, right? Stocks that have real risk down 20, 30, 40, 50%, and those that have really great balance sheets, but, right? So I, I see that in my world. And if there's someone who's going to benefit from people moving money out of banks to safe places, it's probably someone who has money market mutual funds, right? So these these kinds of opportunities, I think, are are magnified when we have these dislocations uh, in the macro, in the micro, like we have now. Any, any comments on uh, First Republic, you know, which is the the one that people clearly were focused on over the weekend as the next uh, domino to fall. Um, you know, I think the stock dropped, I don't know, was it like 50% or something today? I mean, it was, it was bad. 61%. I yeah. mean, that's a bad day. Very. Uh, <laughs> um, I don't know if you guys know this one, you know, well enough to comment on it, but we're, we're uh, financial we're financials guys. We know it pretty well. Um, okay. It, it, the the interesting thing about First Republic Bank, it was always a bank for me. That was uh, because the way my head works, it was always too expensive for my liking because it was, it was viewed as a growth bank and it always traded at a higher multiple than I would have liked. Um, I can't say that's the case anymore. But the one thing they do have, right, um, is a great franchise, a great retail franchise. If you, if you ask anyone who banks there, they love their banking relationship. So the, this is a long-winded way of saying that the brand and the service is worth something. At least I would think it's worth something. Assuming there's not a deposit run that really drains the value of the brand. So, you know, we were sort of just brainstorming, me and a bunch of friends today, like if, if there is not a material deposit run, who would want to acquire this bank? At a discount, right? Probably a discount to face and book value. That would be value. That would be accretive to their own brand because it it has been a well-run retail bank. It just was too expensive for me. Um, but that that was that was my initial thoughts on First Republic. I was just going to say. I, I mean, I don't. I haven't been shorted. I not long it. I'm watching the action in it. It's to Vinny's point. It's great franchise and everything's kind of out in the open right now. So I think if they need to, they'll, this is my point about JP Morgan or some of the bigger banks getting potentially bigger. That That's an easy M&A, right? Possibly. Um, but you're certainly going to have to see capital raise. I would think if we, you know, I'm looking right now, maybe it could come any moment. I, I have no idea, but um, they got exposed just on the comp to Silicon Valley and looking at their portfolio. And it's easy to see Schwab is the same. Um, you know, Schwab has a massive hole relative to the size of its capital. And I can tell you as a, as a Schwab customer, um, to Ravi's point of federated or whatever it might be, I opened up this morning and in my account and, you know, I tend to trade and it settles and whatever, but they had set up two separate banks 
today. I've never seen Schwab Bank and Schwab Premier Bank, and each were under 250,000. They quote, did it for me, um, which is very odd, which scared me even more, which made me immediately buy treasuries with it. Um, so, so, I mean, I swear that's true. And so you think Schwab has this bank, right? It's not hard to the point Robbie made early on. It takes a click right now to, to do it. And so that to me, um, so I think they're, I think they're going to have to raise capital. I, I don't see how now I say that treasuries have pulled in, you know, hundred basis points on the two year, the whole curve is flattening a bit and coming in. So yeah, they're marked to market. All the mark to market got a little bit better, um, you know, in that, uh, right after the Silicon Valley sale, which was the reason that we probably saw treasuries shoot up like they did because the markets. And that's the other thing. For, for a market that's supposed to be so liquid, I mean, you talk about the US treasury market should be the most liquid place to trade on planet Earth. You have 40 basis point moves in days. To, not even on, I mean, yes, today, maybe you call it an exception, a, you know, you know, a, a sigma event of some kind. But um, yeah. So that type of volatility is very hard to manage risk as a bank, as a portfolio manager, as whatever, because your input one day, oh, I'm using 4% on the, well, no, no, use 3.8. No, use 4.3 as you're projecting. So again, someone asked a question in there about hedging and why didn't Silicon Valley hedge out their book? And, you know, and they, you know, it's a great question because the big banks do that and the big REITs do that. The, 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 the mortgage REITs, that's how they live. They measure, they manage duration risk and things like that. So it all really is, Ron, back to your point, or what are these companies set up to do? And they're set up to lend and and pay and and take care of their clients. And that's just has gotten away from us the last couple of decades. So, um, so Andy Fish has a, a question here. How much of this is the 90-day bill being zero one year ago and for many years where leaving cash in a bank didn't matter? And in a single year, that goes to 5% today where there's a huge incentive to shift cash away from a bank. That's it. Next. That's it. Yes. No, no. I'm going to, I'm going to add, I'm going to add to that. Yeah. Right? This is where I think the regulations went awry and Robbie was getting to this. So, so when you see an influx of cash from COVID pandemic stimulus come into the system, right. And you have an artificially high amount of deposits in the entire system with the bet, what, what the regulator should have been telling the banks is that money, even though it's DDAs, meaning zero interest bearing deposits, it's probably hot. So don't you dare extend duration on the left side of your balance sheet and buy maturities so you can tell me and Robbie that their net interest margin beat us by three basis points every quarter. You're not going to do that. Right. So what they needed to do was to hold short duration assets. And at, the, at that time, yielding minimal, um, whether they liked it or not. And this is where regulation goes awry, right? Because the CEOs bought back. They probably said, look, on a court tier one, I'm fine. So leave me alone, right? Mm -hmm. And But that's where I would have done and say, I don't care, mofo. This is what you're doing. Mm -hmm. Because because the safety and soundness of, of the country and the deposits is what my job is not to make sure that you get a higher compensation by beating net interest margin by three basis points every quarter. So. Jeremy Strong would have been proud of that, Vinny. That Thanks. was very, very good. Sorry, yeah. Um, what about cryptocurrencies? The question is, uh, what do you think about this, the impact on cryptocurrencies and people's options of various uh, financial platforms? 
And also, do you think this incident will impact international startups' ability to access U.S. capital markets? I I mean, I think international startups that are good, any, anything that's good will find money somewhere. Believe me, banks are looking for places to help and lend if it's, if you know, if it's or help raise capital for. I, I won't comment on crypto. I, you know, obviously we've seen kind of what's happened here. Crypto needs regulation. It's begging for regulation. Um, and the whole concept of it is don't regulate me. So somewhere that's going to marry and hopefully there's a middle ground there. But I don't know if, if Ravi or, or Vinny want to comment on that. But I think it was, I just want to say one other thing it was evident that when you have duration mismatch of an asset and Silvergate was firsthand that can literally disappear overnight and you have live and you have, or sorry, liabilities in the form of crypto on your balance sheet effectively or coins. And then, you know, you're going out and, and, and using that money for long duration investments that really doesn't work and that can blow up on you quickly. So. I would just say that I, I, don't have a particular view on crypto, but as it relates to financial services, it's been very clear that in the last number of months, a broad set of regulators have decided that they don't like this and they want to hive off crypto from the financial services industry. Whether it's the joint statement from the Fed and OCC saying, we really are going to watch crypto digital type concentrations at banks and beware if you have a lot of them, or it'd be the SEC who wants to declare a lot of things securities, including stable coins. And so I, I think Silvergate failed for a good reason. I think that Signature had the makings of a failure in a bank run. I wouldn't be surprised that they, they didn't necessarily have to be the first one or the next one after Silicon Valley Bank. But I think that 25% of their business was crypto and they ran something called Signet, which is a internal kind of wire system that probably had a lot of nefarious activity on it. I think it was a great excuse for the regulators to take that name down as well over the weekend. That's interesting. Yeah, just let's knock this problem out also while we're at it. I mean, can I just say this? It's kind of interesting that for a little tidbit, uh, Silicon Valley Bank CEO, Greg Becker, was actually on the San Francisco Fed board. And Barney Frank, who wrote the Dodd-Frank Act, who re-regulated financial services, is on or was on the board of Signature Bank that just failed. So a couple interesting twists for you. That's a great pattern. Um, there, didn't Silicon Valley Bank also have, isn't, wasn't there a recent risk manager? Lehman. There was, that's what it was. It was yeah. Lehman. Right. Um, all right, great. Well, we're we're almost at time here, guys. Any uh any parting thoughts on uh on how to navigate this? Um I'd just say that I think most professional investors and or allocators that have investors themselves have sent out emails or told you know where we have our money parked or our portfolio companies are doing this. I think you'll you'll keep seeing more of that. I think that's the right thing to do to kind of get in front of it. And I think I think I wouldn't stop there. I would even the banks that you believe don't have counterparty risk just because the government's come out with this program, uh, if you want to call it that. Um, I think there's more work that needs to be done here. And I think that there's other assets, other issues at some of these banks 
which pose not immediate, maybe immediate risk, but still pose risk. And so I think we're still the beginning stages of an economic downturn. And with that, it's natural that there'll be other products that are implicated. So I w- it's a deep breath moment uh, in general is my last point, but I, I think it, it, it pays to be vigilant here in all aspects of your businesses. I really do. My suggestion to all of them is listen to your risk managers now. Just really like they, they probably have a firm understanding of some of the risks associated with your, your organization. And rather than dismiss them as, as you know, doomsayers and the like, what did we say? The, um, the cynics and the conspiracy theorists right now are batting about a thousand over the last six to nine months. Um, just listen to them. See, see what they're thinking. And 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 really incorporate it into your your business practices right now. My parting uh, shot is I'm going to give a uh, a shout out and a, pro- a props to uh, the podcast that Danny's been on, sponsored by iConnections that wow. <laughs> often hosts Vinny, and I've been listening to it, and it's been a helpful resource. So for those who are looking to navigate the markets, I would check it out. Called on the tape. Uh, well said. All right, guys, I really appreciate you taking the time. Thank you, everyone, for joining us. And uh, Our pleasure. have a great day. Good luck out there. Thank you, Thanks, everybody. Thanks, Ron. Thanks.